Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is Haunted History with Asher Brooks, and I am your host, Asher Brooks. I've been a ghost tour guide for eight years with two different companies, one of which I ran and wrote myself. I love strange and twisted tales, the more macabre, the merrier. Each show will have a main theme and a special guest who will bring their own terrible tale to tell. Today's special guest is one of my favorite people in the whole world. She's a stage manager and theater professional who I met first working on a show down south in Columbus. We've both since moved up here to Wisconsin, so we're really lucky to have her with us today. Uh, since her first show, she stage managed touring shows, black box dramas, and huge cast musicals. She's an incredible person who can handle thousands of light cues, sound cues, and dumb actor questions. She's Anna Brooks! Hi! Thank you so much for being with us today. She also happens to be the lovely woman I am married to. I had no choice. I didn't force you, but <laughs> that's fine. Let's just let's just start this off with just the vague idea I'm keeping you trapped in this house. Um, luckily, this is not a video format, so you cannot blink for help. <laughs> SOS? No, there will be no SOSs. Um, so each week, our special guests will bring something unique that I don't know about, and they'll tell me all about it before we get to our main theme. This is a way to kind of get the ball rolling, get us feeling comfortable with each other. Um, now, of course, Anna and I are very comfortable with each other because we are married. We got married on Halloween. She and I both love Halloween. Um, we love spooky things. In fact, um, it was, I believe, our second date that took place in a graveyard. Yes. She came on one of the ghost tours that I was running, and we actually met at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So if you're familiar with that, you can understand the type of people we are. Weird. And yes, exactly what brand of weird we are. Um, <clears throat> now, um, Anna, I know you have basically a theme for us. What is it that you brought with you? Um, well, today, since uh, we are both from Georgia, born and raised, I figured that we would stick with a Georgia theme and talk about something that Asher told me on our first date, uh, which was a little something about an underwater town in Lake Lanier. Which is very interesting, except uh, when I did my research, it is much, much darker. It has a horrible history. Uh, yeah, things things in the South tend to have pretty bad history, um, uh, and this has that kind of history, correct? Yes, it is. Uh, it is very racist. All right, so today we are talking about Lake Lanier, which is the largest lake in Georgia. Um, it is a man-made lake but it can also claim the title of one of the most deadly lakes in the whole United States. Currently, it is a prolific recreational area for the summers, and it houses about eight to 10 million people who visit every summer. It's a top vacation spot for locals, but it has a long, dark history. So where Lake Lanier sits is directly over Oscarville, which was one of the largest towns before Lake Lanier was there. Because like I said, it is man-made. A little bit about Oscarville and why it's important. It was the largest town that's currently under Lake Lanier, but it was a primarily black community of like blacksmiths, carpenters, labor workers, farmers, things like that during the Reconstruction era post-Civil War. It was a very, very prosperous area. The crops were doing great. They were doing a lot of business. Um, local newspapers of the time claimed that Oscarville was a strong black community and many, many children also were attending local schools, which was, if you were white, it was a little odd for you at that time to think of black people going to school, getting educations. And in the census of 1908, it showed that 316 children of color were enrolled in school in that county. 
Because of this, some white residents in Forsyth County, which is the nearby county, mm-hmm. they saw this community as sort of a threat. One wa- white subscriber to the newspaper wrote a letter expressing fear that the children attending school might eventually be able to pass the state's literacy test that kept black residents from voting in the polls. So it was, it was considered a threat because they were worried that they would get too educated and begin to vote? Yes. I forgot that you had to take literacy tests to vote. During the um, during the time, like they had so many rules and regulations. Even though slavery had been abolished by that point, mm-hmm. they had put so many rules, regulations, and like things to that black people had to get over before they could even have like the same rights, if they could get any, as white people. And is, that's is this Jim Crow stuff, or is this the like the beginning of Jim Crow? I believe around the time of Jim Crow, they were, even though slavery, quote unquote, was abolished, it could still be used if the people were, if like black people were jailed. They could use it as like a form of punishment. So it's a prosperous black community. It's set in this large, like dipped valley and it's full of what? Almost entirely black residents? Pretty much. Okay. So that was up until about 1912. So these black people are having a great time, they're prospering, but in 18, in, sorry, in 1912, mm-hmm. there were two incidents that began inciting violence towards the Oscarville community. So the first happened in uh, nearby Cummings, Georgia, okay. where a woman was attacked in her bed during the night and allegedly that was by two black men even though it was never like confirmed but as soon as that happened of course everyone starts losing their minds yes um and only two days later a woman named sleety may crow which by the way is an amazing name (laughs) that is sleety may (laughs) well a lot of if you're not from the south you don't you may not know this a lot of people in the south have multiple names um, I had a, a friend when I was in Boy Scouts whose name was Ben Allen Dunn, um, but of course nobody said Ben Allen Dunn, so he was called Bubba. Um, so Sleety May, I assume had a different name. I assume they didn't say Sleety May, but well, I'm sure. Um, I have no uh, information on that part. <laughs> but I... <laughs> I have no information about what Sleety May's nickname was. Uh, that's fair. I did ask you to do some research, but you know, um, I did not dive that that you deeply. You didn't go and talk to her best friend. <laughs> no, I did from not. 1956. <laughs> okay. So, um, so two days after this woman had been attacked, uh, allegedly by two black men, Sleety Mae Crow, uh, who was a 19-year-old white woman, was found dead in the woods near Oscarville, and while. There's no um, evidence. It was written that she was presumably raped. They didn't know who it was, uh, but when May was found, the obvious conclusion to racist white men is that black men must have done it, right? That was that was something that was commonly turned to. When oh, violence, for sure. When violence was committed near other communities, they were yeah they were usually targeted. It had to be the black people who were the outsiders. Yeah, yeah they were real. Yeah. They were real upset about it. So, um, in retaliation, they arrested four black teenagers, 16-year-old Ernest Knox, mm-hmm. his 18-year-old uh, cousin, Oscar Daniel, Oscar's 22-year-old sister with another great name, Trussy Jane Daniel, mm-hmm. and 24-year-old Robert Big Rob Edwards. 
So eventually, uh, Trussie Jane Daniel, the 22-year-old sister, she was released. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, because the other three men um, were kept in prison. But I have I have a feeling it had something to, something to do with uh, her being female. Yeah. Versus the men. The day after their arrest, a white mob entered Robert Edwards' cell for no reason other than they were enraged that this thing could happen to their white daughter. Yeah, these were not these were not deputies or sheriffs. These were just no, people. Just people who were just enraged. Some, yeah, just some yeah, a mob. So they entered Robert's cell. Uh, they shot him, dragged him into the streets, and hanged him from a telephone pole right outside the courthouse. Mm, that's not. I mean, where? What happened to the other two boys? Did they get? They were. They remained well? in prison. Now, were they in the same facility? I don't believe so. I believe. Um, I believe they. So they thought, went for they went for Roberts because they could get to him. Well, I believe that they thought that Ed, Robert Edwards was the one who committed the crime. Okay. Um, because he, I did see that he was removed from like the main cell and was actually being transported closer to like the Atlanta area during okay. this time when the mob got him. Um. So, unfortunately, the death of um. Miss Crow and Edwards lynching spurred more violence from the whites. And that night, a mob of white men calling themselves the Night Riders. That's clan stuff. Yeah. The Night Riders started terrorizing Oscarville, uh, shooting into houses with guns, um, setting fires to those houses, the local church, crops, everything that they could get their hands on and destroy they just they just came and burned everything yeah, down pretty much um people were waking from their beds dead their houses being engulfed in flames and i cannot imagine how terrifying that was because burning alive is like the t- one of the top three worst ways to die in my opinion absolutely um so a lot of prominent african-american communities were like burned and destroyed um so what happened so what happened to the people inside were they all killed did they well, a lot of them did die during the attack, yeah. um, but a lot of people did try to escape Osterville, um, and they escaped to the near Forsyth County. So, in total, 1,100 people, 1,100 black people, were driven out of Oscarville, leaving their land, their crops, their homes, and every belonging behind. Now, later on, there were a few who were able to um, get their land back, but that was few and far between. Most people just left and uh, had nothing to their name and had to completely rebuild. Now, in terms of the other boys that were detained, the two others, uh, yeah. Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel, they uh, were taken to court, and a jury took just over an hour to convict them of uh, for Miss Crow's death. 5,000 people gathered to watch these two black boys teenage boys get hanged. That doesn't feel good. Yeah. That doesn't feel good. And unfortunately, with the evidence that we have, it is widely believed that all of the men killed were innocent of their crime, as many black people were during that time. Oh, yeah. No, I... It it is... Yeah, this is something of a historical reoccurrence that, you know, of course, minority groups in all over, like in Europe, in America, are always used for scapegoats, especially for crimes that are considered particularly violent, like 
like sexual crimes as well mm-hmm. tend to land kind of squarely on the shoulders of minority groups because the there's I think there's just this intrinsic feeling, especially in these insulated communities, of like um, like these white sheriffs and white deputies that are immediately like they come upon something they find horrifying, and they can't imagine a neighbor or somebody they sit across the dinner table from doing this. Yeah. And so they immediately go to the people they consider others, um, which is honestly horrible. Do you know what happens to all the land? Did... So eventually what happened is the uh, land, uh, about 40 years later, um, I'll, I'll backpedal and then we'll yeah, yeah, answer yeah. that question, but about 40 years later, um, the land that uh, once made up Oscarville... It was still mostly abandoned. Like I said, some people came back uh, and were able to claim that land. Mm -hmm. But the Industrial Bureau of Georgia met with the Chamber of Commerce to greenlight what is now the Buford Dam's construction. And so um, this new dam was proposed to provide a large water source for Atlanta, which was Mm -hmm. booming and growing. Yeah. Becoming um, like a core place of transportation and goods and things like that and to control the flooding of the Chattahoochee River, because if you've ever been around it while it rains, you know that that thing floods. We've seen it when we lived in Columbus, right on the Chattahoochee. Mm-hmm. It would raise like five, ten feet onto the walkway. Yeah, it was very common. I think it was maybe not once a year, but I remember, yeah, people would text me, like well, our our theater complex was right alongside the river. People would text you pictures of like street lamps like, the water would be right up to the edge of the street lamp because it would flood. Yeah, and, like, only, like, a foot of it was left on the top. Yes. So, but essentially, in terms of that land that you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, the the whites who had, the white people who had um, taken over that area, essentially, claimed that land and then sold it to the government during this time. Mm. Because the government was buying out all of that land that would uh, later be underneath what's now Lake Lanier. Okay, so it got bought up and, like, condemned. Yes. So, um, they essentially bought out Oscarville, the surrounding areas, um, at unfair prices, mind you, before flooding the area in 1959, essentially wiping Oscarville from the map. And, um, a lot of our history, to be quite honest, like, we've lived so close to this location and never once heard about Oscarville. Yeah, I mean, I know of Lake Lanier, like... Yeah, Everyone, everyone goes there every summer to uh, boat and suntan and swim and just have a good time. And just to know that there's this dark secret that nobody has been told right it's, underneath. It's, it's, it, that's, that's not great. Yeah, there is actually a theory um, amongst people that say that the building of Lake Lanier in the 50s was specifically chosen to cover up uh, the town and to silently remove it from history because of the horrific things that happened there. Yeah. Which, honestly, fully would believe. That does tend to be what happens. You know, this land suddenly becomes vacant for some reason. Vacant with big air quotes around it. And then, well, oh look, it's time for another big civic project. You know? Do you know what every populated town has? Mmm, uh, gas station? I mean, yes, but no. Um, they have dead people. And oh. do you know where those dead people go? They go into cemeteries and graves and stuff. Yeah. So what do you think happened to those who were buried on that land when it flooded? Well, from the tone of your voice, I'm assuming nothing good. <laughs> well, 
Um, yes and no. The U.S. government did try to relocate some of those graves, um, but it was dependent on getting permission from the family members, and of course, um, by that time, a lot of them had been driven from the area. And so, they did get some and, and relocate them, but there was there's countless others. Some without actual headstones, unmarked graves, people who have been there too long to know where they are. Um, and so, when they flooded Lake Lanier, there, there remained appro- approximately 20 cemeteries and many structures that had just not been removed that sit at the bottom of Lake Lanier. There's full roads, like full bridges and buildings that just, they're, they're just chilling beneath the surface. Down the, how deep is Lake Lanier? So Lake Lanier, um, at the at the deepest, it's um, 156 feet, but the average is about 60 feet. And it's even so shallow in some points that uh, when it, when like the severe droughts come through, you can see different parts of buildings, like What's fascinating is they actually had like a racetrack in Oscarville, like a full racetrack for audio- automobiles. And during 2007, there was a severe drought and the first like three or four bleachers, like top of the bleachers stands uh, could be seen coming out of the water. And I can't imagine how freaking creepy that is. Well, you would think that if they're going to make this, because this is a place where people go boating and like yeah. tubing and stuff. Um, and if you've never been tubing, it involves hurling around the lake at high speed while attached to the back of a boat and then getting flung off. So you'd think they would pull these things out, but there's still bleachers down there? Yeah, well, originally when Lake Lanier was made, it wasn't made to be this tourist area um, with boats and everything. They just made it to to help Atlanta It's supposed to just be water. a reservoir. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that Lake Lanier has, you know, become this big thing... A lot of people have been getting, have gotten hurt over the years because of it. Um, I mean, even when they flooded Lake Lanier, some of the trees were so tall they had to go in and, like, actually chainsaw them into the water because boats, like, I mean, boats would get stuck on them, but how creepy do you think it would be to see the tops of a tree just emerging from the middle of a lake? I mean, yeah, that sounds awful, but those trees are still there? Yeah. Divers have gone in and they have like video evidence and pictures of like buildings still being there. These trees still going strong under the water. I don't know how that happens. Um, Some of them have even talked about like giant uh, catfish that they see that are like toddler, not toddler size, like 10 year old size. 10 year old size? Like a 10 year old child. But let me tell you a little bit about. the deaths that have since occurred since Lake Lanier is built. So currently it's estimated that between 500 and 700 people have died in the lake since its creation. Um, And 200 of those people have been since 1994. That puts seven people per year who have died in Lake Lanier. Like, every year. Do you know how many people died from shark attacks, like, just last year? I'm gonna guess maybe... Ten? Ten? Uh, I mean, close. Um, about nine people died of shark attacks last year. And seven people died last year at Lake Lanier. No, that's shark attacks in, like, the Gulf of Mexico? No, I mean, like, shark attacks 
worldwide. So all the sharks in the world and one lake in Georgia have the same body count? Yep. Okay. Similar, but yes. Okay. That's not great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then get get this, 27 people who have died in Lake Lanier, mm-hmm. their bodies were never recovered. Like, they're just chilling in the lake still. I don't know if chilling's the right word. I mean, they're just... But... <laughs> no. They're in there. Now, in terms of those high death numbers, mm-hmm. you might be like, yeah, sure, 8 to 10 million people, you know, show up to Lake Lanier every year, and they party, and they drink, and there's accidents. Yeah. Cool. Like, that, I get that. That happens. Yeah. But in comparison to Lake Alatoona, mm-hmm. which is only 40 miles away and gets the same number of people per year, they have one-third less death. I mean, yes, if you think about it, there's, there's, you know, there's. I'm sure there's, like, fishing line down there that gets caught. There might be, like, roots, uh, or not roots, like, branches of trees. Um, pretty much every vehicle that is been submerged down there, mm-hmm. boat or otherwise, we'll get to the otherwise in a second, um, has not been recovered from the lake. It's still down there. Yeah, most of them are still down there. And so those become traffic issues. Now, there is another explanation. And as a, as a non-believer, you're mm-hmm. going to roll your eyes. It's true. Um, just so anyone is wondering, um, I love ghost stories. I do not believe in ghosts. Um, I am a coward, and so... Uh, I cannot believe in ghost stories um, because it would freak me out so much. So I firmly don't believe in ghosts. Anna, you do believe in ghosts. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a firm believer, and um, there are a lot of theories that, of course, Lake Lanier is haunted. Now, being a believer, I firmly believe that what I'm about to tell you is true. Okay. So, legend has it that Lake Lanier is haunted. Some believe that the lake's haunted by those whose graves were decimated and flooded when um, Lake Lanier was created, which I can understand. Um, others believe that it's the spirits of the Cherokee natives that were mur- murdered or displaced during colonization. But the most famous ghost story is known as the Lady of the Lake. Now this comes around uh, because in 1958 there were two friends, Delia Mae Parker Young, and another person with three names <laughs> another person with a nice delia long name May parker young four names yeah yeah it looks like uh delia may might have been the first name parker maybe the middle and okay. young i don't really know it wasn't um i got you the commas were a little spacey yeah i got you <laughs> um and her friend uh susie roberts now one account says that they were getting gas and decided to skip out on paying for it. Okay. Um, and as they were, like, crossing the bridge, getting away from the gas station, their car skidded off, and they careened into the lake. Another account just says that the women were just driving, and Susie lost control of the car. Those stories are, um, you know, just stories and speculation at this point. Well, all we know is that the car did go into the water, and they both died. The bodies were unfortunately not removed immediately, and they did not know exactly where the girls went. Um, There's speculation, you know, in in terms of them stealing the gas and not paying for it, that they had just left town. Um, Even though there were some tire tracks in some of the articles I was reading, Mm -hmm. there was speculation that they did go in, but there was a lot of who knows, really. I got you. So it wasn't... It, like, this is nobody, back in the 50s. Nobody came across the scene and found the car, like, halfway wrecked. Yeah, and no. They just went off the bridge, and, and I gone. guess the only thing that was left was, like, some tire tracks. Yeah. 
Pretty much. Ugh. I mean, this is 1958, right after uh, the wa- like the water had been put into Lake Lanier, and it was still a relatively new location. Okay. Um, so, all we know is they skidded off the bridge, they did die. Now, the bodies were not uh, recovered immediately, and the girls were presumed uh, dead. Now, the following year, a fisherman came across one unidentifiable decomposing body with no arms and missing toes. That was floating near one of the bridges, um, and unfortunately, she did remain a Jane Doe until about 40 years later, um, when there was some construction going on, that they discovered uh, the vehicle that had careened off with the remains of... um, Roberts inside. They did dental work um, and and realized that that's who she was, and then they assumed further that the decomposed body was the friend. Yes. What was her name? She had four names? She did have four names. Delia Mae Parker Young and Delia Susie Parker, Roberts. Susie Roberts. Yeah, Susie so, Roberts was the one they found in the car. Yes. Okay. So Delia, Delia Mae, mm-hmm. if you will, um, is the one that people believe is the Lady of the Lake. Because Delia was wearing a, like, pale blue flowy dress when she died. Mm -hmm. And people um, claim to have seen her by the water, uh, just wandering around. And some say that if you get too close, she will pull you under the water and drown you. There are accounts of survivors who had near-death experiences at Lake Lanier. And they claim that they felt someone was pulling them down by their legs. Which makes the Lady of the Lake story a little bit more surreal. That sounds awful. It sounds terrifying. That sounds terrifying. Now, there are also many reports of, mm-hmm. like, creepy sounds emerging from beneath the water, which should not be happening. Like, what kinds of sounds? Just, like, eerie moaning and, like, things that aren't water lapping up against the shoreline. Like, if you think of that noise, mm-hmm. it's everything but. <laughs> Okay, so just non-water noises. Yeah, no, obviously non-water noises. Non-water noises. Okay. Um, the scariest type of noises. And so, um, the lake's also been a playground for divers because it's been an anomaly. There's not many times that you hear about a full, like, town being submerged in the water. Mm-hmm. So divers have gone down. They have uh, reported seeing and taking pictures and videos of what remains of the town's um, they've found bodies and body parts before down there, and, um, one person who gets quoted a lot in all of these, like, different articles mm-hmm. is, um, a longtime diver named Buck Buchanan, and he has, uh, this to say about body parts in the water. Mm-hmm. He says, and I quote, you reach out into the dark and you feel an arm or a leg and it doesn't move. That's creepy. And I agree with him. Like, I cannot tell you how terrifying that would be if you're swimming and all of a sudden a decomposed body part's there. Well, he is a rescue diver, so I imagine that is unfortunately something he deals with a lot, right? Yeah, Because people go missing in the lake a lot, a lot. I mean, yeah, 200 people. (laughs) So that's that's like what he does, right? Yeah. So he goes down and he finds them. So hopefully, if you are swimming in Lake Lanier, you are less likely to come across a body. But how many people do you say were missing down there still, had never um, been recovered? 27 people have yet to be recovered in Lake Lanier. So next time you go, 
maybe you'll find an arm or a leg of that person. Maybe, maybe, hopefully not. But uh, to stay safe, I would just not go swimming in Lake Lanier. I agree. Um, don't do it. Just don't do it. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I uh, hated it. I hated every part of it. So thank you so much. Oh, what? You hated the racism and the death and the ghosts? I didn't like any of it. I really didn't. I thought all of it was bad. That's fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Um, and now it is my turn to hurt you because I have brought um, some really, really terrible stories with me. Um, I actually... Actually, our, our main theme today was supposed to be originally about a man named Terrar, a French soldier, but it spirals, as things usually do, into a very deep dive on a strange profession in European history, someone known as a supernatural glutton. Uh, so before we get started, uh, this is just a quick content warning. This section will deal with very sensitive topics, including acts of excess excessive consumption, animal cruelty, and cannibalism. I only say this because, well, some of these things are very dark, and it's only going to get worse the deeper we go in. So please, um, if you start feeling uncomfortable, you are welcome to tune on out, okay? Now that I've scared or interested you, we're going to go ahead and begin. As you all know, the freak show was a common form of entertainment in early societies. Uh, royals and nobles, the well-to-do, would host traveling troops of people with strange talents or strange body types. Some common examples are bearded ladies, snake charmers, or conjoined twins. Now, oftentimes these oddities were simply African or Asian people dressed in outlandish costumes. Many of these performers were mistreated and suffered greatly at the hands of the audiences and the leaders of the show. Uh, some were simply in it for the steady work, seeing no alternative for themselves, but many more performers were slaves or indentured servants of the ringmasters or showmen who used them. As we move forward, keep in mind almost all of these people were victims of circumstances beyond their control, and the history of freak shows and circuses is a deeply flawed one. Um, the people I'm going to talk about are a little bit like freak show performers, but were a little bit different. Uh, they didn't usually come with tents and big tops. They didn't usually uh, get invited as part of a troupe. They were singular performers. Though these people looked quite normal, these were people that had supernatural powers of digestion. Powers that allowed them to consume credible amounts of food or things that would be deadly to normal people. Now some of them not ate, ate not as a feat of strength, but because of a desperate hunger that drove them to consume anything and everything they could find. Now, people had started making this their profession. One of the first was a man named Nicholas Wood who lived in Kent. He was known as the Great Eater of Kent or the Hero of Kent after discovering he had an incredible appetite for food. Now, he was not what you can, would consider a large person. He was a stoutly built farmhand, a servant, but all, all, all over a normal looking person. Um, but he had to spend all of his money on food, and so he quickly became well-known as someone who would travel to county fairs and festivals and do these great feats of eating. He would go to, if you imagine, a Nathan's hot dog eating contest, but instead of hot dogs, it is a whole pig. Um, or he would come and a table would be laden with cooked birds and bread and potatoes, and he would eat the whole thing. People would watch, they would cheer him on, they would take bets on whether or not he'd be able to finish. Um, and soon he began to make bets with people about how much that he could eat. And then, quite literally, local gentlemen, local rich people started to invite him to their homes. He would be the entertainment for the evening. So, do you know if, like, he had a medical condition that made him hungry? Or was he doing this, like, as a way to get food and, like, afford food? 
Well, from what I know about his history, he was the servant of a local gentleman, so he didn't need money. But he, well, he did need money, but he wasn't, he wasn't extremely poor. This wasn't somebody who was very poor, kind of trying to trick rich people into giving him food. Mm -hmm. um, this was something that he was good at and something that he was also compelled to do. So I believe it was an undiagnosed medical condition. Um, most of the people I'll talk about today, I think, have undiagnosed medical conditions. Um, but at the time, they were just kind of put under one big umbrella, something called polyphagia. Um, polyphagia. Polyphagia, That's a yes. fun, weird it, word. I think it's, I, I don't know the exact Latin translation, but um, it was basically like someone who was driven to consume excessive amounts of food. He was notably very hungry all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, however, he is certainly not the most impressive person we'll talk about today, but he is one who did manage to commercialize it. Um, so, he would be invited as entertainment for the evening. Uh, in his early days, he once ate a dinner that was set out for eight people, all by himself. Um, he won this bet, he made a little bit of money, and people started to like know his name. And so another large manor invites him, this lord named William Seeley. But this time, of course, you know, you, you eat a dinner for eight people at one place. William wants to do an even greater feat. So he lays out a table for 12 people. Um, and, of course, this table is covered in bread and meat and wine and cheese. So Woods is kind of brought in. And all around this table, you know, sitting at little tables and little couches and stuff, are all these rich people, like merchants and ladies-in-waiting and their children and all the local nobles. And he is literally brought into a room, he sits down at one end of the table, and servants are just like, all right, where would you want to start? Let's get going. And they would bring him just plate after plate of this food, and he would eat until either it was all gone. Um, and of course, people are making side bets along the way. But this table that's set up for 12 people, he apparently finished every single bit but one plate and passed out before he could finish it. Um, and he didn't pass out like, oh, I can't take anymore. No, he dropped out of the chair. He just fell on his side, and all of course, the, all the people are gasping, like, oh my god, the peasant's going to die. You know, people are taking bets on whether or not he's going to live. And so the consensus, the cons seriously, this is what rich people did. Oh, no. They're like, let's invite a poor person, and let's see how much food he can eat. And if he dies, well, fun. Um, and so they literally have these servants drag him over by the fire. The consensus is that he is going to die. And so they drag him over by the fire, and his belly is reportedly has swollen. He looks like he's pregnant. His belly is sticking out. They lay him by the fire. He's like in this passed out comatose state. And people begin just taking bets on whether or not he's going to explode, whether he's going to die. Um, but as the night goes on, he just lays there. Nothing really happens. And so people kind of start to get bored. And eventually everybody goes home, disappointed they didn't get to see him die. Um, what the heck? They, yeah, they just left. They were like, well, I guess the show's over. Um, and so... Uh, the Lord was like, I'm going to bed, and told a couple of servants, was like, just watch him, you know, let's see where he's at tomorrow morning, let's see, and it just assumed he's going to pass out and die, he's just going to die, and they're going to go out there next morning and just like throw him in the ditch or something, and so the, the Lord William Seeley comes down the next morning and finds that he has not died, he is in fact sitting right there by the fireplace, his belly has completely sunk back in. Um, he looks like a normal person. It was reportedly, his only ill effect was that he was—he looked like he had a hangover. He was like rubbing his head, he's like I got a bit of headache. Um, he probably from hitting the ground. Probably from hitting the ground. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess the worst thing is a concussion. Um, 
So servants found him that morning sitting by the fire. He apparently apologized for failing to fulfill his wager. Um, however, William Seeley, who put him up to the bet, was not inclined to forgive him. Apparently, he was quite a sore winner. Seeley was disappointed that he had not completed his feat, nor provided entertainment by dying in front of everyone. <laughs> by and, dying! Well, I mean, that is kind of what the Lord expected to happen. Oh my right? gosh. Like, I mean, th what was the outcome of this bet? It's like when you go see somebody, like, try and jump a bunch of semi-trucks on a motorcycle. Like, it's kind of the unspoken thing. It's like, we're either going to see him succeed, or we're going to see a motorcycle crash. And so it was this kind of, like, it's a little bit of blood sport. You know, like, can this man survive this? Um, so, he's a very sore winner. He had this man, he had Woods dragged outside and put in the local stocks. And people came, you know, came to, like, throw trash at him and make fun of him. Um, you know, just just taking a break here. How how does that make you feel? How do you feel about Mr. Woods so far? Oh, I don't like. I feel bad for him. I agree. I also feel bad for him. I I do. I think the the real tragedy, the real horror here is like what rich people will do when they're bored, right? Like this is what the aristocracy was up to. They were just feeding peasants to see if they would pop. I cannot think of a single thing worse. Like, and more boring than having to watch someone just eat. Like, I don't... People like mukbangs, and mm. I don't understand it because it just grosses me out. <laughs> I also don't understand mukbangs. Um, I guess you could kind of consider this a mukbang, but a very adversarial one. Um, nobody is <laughs> on his... Mukbang or die! Yeah, mukbang <laughs> or die. No one is on his team here. Um, but his story continues. He's actually eventually released. Um, you know, Seeley kind of lets him go. And he continues doing his job. He continues going and, and making these incredible acts of eating. Um, he actually gets his reputation back in one particular story. So he is invited to a castle, a place called Lawton. And while he is there, he eats seven dozen rabbits in a row. <gasps> that is 84 rabbits in total. Um, now, all of these were cooked and laid out for him. Apparently, he came in. It was very similar to the Sealy Manor. He comes in, and there's this long table, and there's just rabbit, 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 rabbit. The whole table is full. Um, uh, all cooked and laid out for him. He moved down the table until a veritable mountain of bones had gathered, and the final rabbit was consumed by the breathless hero of Kent. Um, now, he did make money. He was betting, quite literally. He would go and bet with these people a, a small wager. But the real, like, the real upside for a guy like him was that he would be invited to these royal manors. You know, and this would be, you know, when I say, like, the night's entertainment, you have to remember, this wasn't like, oh, it's a Saturday night, what are we going to do? No, like, people would come, they would stay the weekend at the house, people would be put up, meals and tea would be served, games would be played, and then he was, like, the Saturday night entertainment so he was basically spending a whole weekend at these very fancy manners being waited on and kind of treated like hand and foot but with that kind of like tongue-in-cheek like you're you're the piano player at the nice hotel you know what I mean like yeah you're here and you're dressed nice but you don't get to eat in the dining room with us kind of stuff so I mean, it's this very, like, you can clearly see, like, the, the reason he was called the Hero of Kent was not because of these rich people. It was literally poor people who were like, I like that guy. Like, <laughs> he's, because every time he would win a bet, it would be with, like, Lord, you know, flam flamping pants of the local, you know, the local manor that runs all of our lives. And everybody loves to see, you know, the local authority get taken down a peg or two, which is how he got this name. Um, uh, but anyway, once he regains his reputation, he travels to London to try and kind of make a go of this as a full, like a full-time performer. 
um, because you know there's there's a little bit of a circuit, but there's only so many manor houses in in England that you can go to that will feed you yeah. before they're like, mm, no, we're done with the trick. And I'm sure after a while they're like, oh, he's gonna beat us regardless. Yeah, it's true. So he, it's like word of mouth, like no, we're not letting you in. It's true. We know your trick. There's only there's only so many rich people that will you know will, will do this for you. Um, so he goes to London and then he meets a man named John Dale. Now, Dale had already heard of Woods and his incredible power of appetite. Uh, he bet Woods that not only could he provide a meal that could not be finished, he could do it in less than two shillings. Now, a shilling is not very much at all. Um, it's like saying you could beat Joey Chestnut with less than $10 in your pocket, right? So, of course, Woods accepts this challenge. He doesn't know what's happening. That's kind of the deal. But he and uh, Woods and Dale meet at a public house with a big crowd watching. A public house is kind of like a bar. Um, so they were just called a public house, a house the public could come to. Um, Dale shows up, Wood sits down to an empty table, there's nothing laid out for him, and then one by one, Dale brings in not geese, or pork, or vegetables, he just starts to bring in loaves of bread. And now, at this time, you could buy really cheap bread. Like, bread was often made with flour, like nice white bread was very expensive, but you can make bread out of a lot of different things. Like, you can make bread out of acorns. It doesn't taste good, and it's really hard but you can buy it, and it is nutritious. You can eat it. Um, and so Dale brings out these loaves of bread, starts laying them out, but they're not these nice, like, even these, like, regular acorn loaves, they're all dark purple. Um, and as he finally gets down to the end, there's about three or four dozen laid out. Um, Woods kind of can start to smell this stench of alcohol. See, what Dale had done is he had gone and soaked all of these loaves of bread in wine. Oof. And so it was... Just, I mean, if you can imagine, first off, the idea of eating wet bread makes me want to jump out a window. Yeah, but I agree. That's awful. Like, but he had soaked it in wine, like the most alcoholic, cheap stuff he could find. And so what Woods realizes is that he wasn't in an eating contest. He was in a drinking contest. Now, of course, he does his best. To his credit, he tried, he tried to eat them all. Um, and he got about halfway through, but every time he took another bite, he got drunker and drunker. And eventually he was so slobbering drunk that he once again passed out and toppled off, toppled off of his chair and down onto the floor. Um, he is dragged once again by the fire to recover, and John Dale is declared the winner. And that really spells the end of the hero of Kent. Woods did survive. Um, which is surprising due to, like, what we know about alcohol poisoning at this point. Yeah. Um, but he did survive, but his career never did. Well, I wonder if maybe, like... See, my thought process would be if he's eating the bread and the wine, like, they always tell you to eat before you drink. So mm -hmm. I was... So maybe they would cancel each other out. They but certainly... They <laughs> certainly not. did not. They certainly did not. Well, I, I think... I, I do, like... You kind of have to respect Dale here, who is like, yeah... I can get you a bunch of, like, cheap bread, for sure. But what Dale realized is that you couldn't beat him on eating, but you could beat him on drinking. Um, and I, I, I gotta have to imagine, that's just gotta be an awful thing to go through. Ugh. Like, first off, knowing you're going to lose, and, like, uh, being drunk and angry at the same time, and full, is the worst combination <laughs> of ingredients. Like, you're mad and full, and you can't move, and you can't walk. Um, but Woods, apparently after this, many people kind of like tried to get him to come back to London and do like stage shows. And he was like, no, I'm done. I'm out. He got I, butt hurt. He got, I mean, I would, I would be butt hurt at that point. You know what I mean? He got tricked by this John Dale, who is basically this, like this confidence man who, I mean, I guess if your whole job is to make bets with people, 
maybe expect that con men are coming for you. Yeah. Uh, but Woods is very interesting, but he is just the appetizer. And I will warn you now, here's where things start to get nasty. Um, I was telling you earlier, I think the worst thing about this story, or at least the beginning of this story, is what rich people will do when they are bored. And that is kind of how we start this next one. Oh, no. So... In 1788, at a racetrack, two nobles had grown bored of betting on horses and jockeys. Oh, so they so they bet on snails instead. Tell me that they bet on, like, snails or pigs running or something cute. They did not bet on animals. They kind of bet on animals. Actually. Oh, no. They concocted a new wager. The Duke of Bedford made a bet for the sum of 1,000 Guinness that Lord Barrymore couldn't eat a live cat. Oh! <gasps> A live cat? No! Live at the time of consumption. Oh, no! Yeah, talk about a hairball. Um, That's not funny! It is kind of funny. It's not good, but it's kind of funny. As a cat lover, I could never... I could never imagine eating my own cat. Well, I will tell you this. I took that into consideration as I wrote the rest of these, like, notes here. So I promise you I will be gentle with the facts contained therein. Um, now, I know about this, and the entire country learned about this because it was printed in a sporting newspaper. Um, so a, a newspaper reporter, like a magazine, they were called magazines back at the time, but just think of it as like a paper, um, like heard them talking about this and immediately printed it. They put it out across the country and people started writing in. Oh my god! They started writing in about how they had seen people eat cats or foxes, all sorts of different animals. Dozens of these letters came in. And apparently so much interest was garnered in this bet, whether or not this nobleman was going to eat this cat, that the magazine had to print a retraction. See, apparently Lord Barrymore heard that the magazine was writing about him and that the whole country was now trying to figure out whether or not this noble was going to eat a cat. So he marched down to the office and made them print a retraction. Um, so he came in and he stated quite firmly, he himself was not going to eat the cat. The bet was, could he find someone to do it? So He chickened out. He, He's going to do I, this, and I, then he chickens I, out. I, I agree. I fully agree. I believe this man made a bet while he was drunk that he could eat a live cat. And then he was like, oh, no. No, the, the peasants know I'm going to eat a cat. No, that's <laughs> not happening. Um, and the peasants. So, not the peasants. <laughs> no, no, no. Not the common folks. Um, now... Like I said, the bet was not, would he eat the cat? The bet was, could he find someone to do so? And the answer to that was, resoundingly, yes. I mean, I'm sure if you pay somebody enough money, mm -hmm. they're willing to do anything. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he absolutely did. Uh, so two years later, in 1790, at a public two house. Two years? Two years later. Oh my gosh. Yep, two years later. Well, I gotta say, like, the you gotta remember, the lives of these nobles moved at an incredibly slow pace, Right? You know what I mean? Like, they met at a racetrack a year before this, and the bet is established. You know what I mean? Like, these people's lives, these are all bored country squires. They don't do anything unless there's a war, right? So, two years later in 1790, at a public house in Windsor, a crowd gathered, a crowd gathered to watch the man Barrymore had found. Uh, so the paper, of course, was in attendance. They dubbed this man, quote, the Man Monster, after they watched him take on his challenge, a live nine-pound black tomcat. No! Not a black cat! No! Uh, just so you this know, so bad. dear listeners, um, we have a cat named Biscuits. He is black. I don't know how much he weighs. Probably nine pounds. Um, thankfully, this story seems to have, have, have had him vacate the room. Um, I don't know where he's at right now, but 
Um, is this your, if, you, if this is your ploy to get rid of our cat, I am I'm going to be so get, upset. I'm not trying to get rid of the cat. I would not do this. Um, I'm so sorry. He's, he's here to take on the challenge. This man monster is here. Uh, so the description in the paper of what happened is quite brief, and I will shorten it for you again. Uh, so Thank he, you. he apparently disposed of the cat with his teeth before eating it raw. Um, if you've ever cracked a pecan, still in the shell, he basically crushed its skull. Oh my god! So that it died with his jaws, and then he consumed every part of the cat except the bones. Oh my gosh, that's terrible! This was, of course, to the horror and amazement of the crowd, and as you can imagine, it caused a huge stir. Um, now, he was paid his sum, 1,000 guineas. Uh, now, this bet wasn't the first case either, it was just one of the most well-published um, this type of blood sport flourished, and cats were not the only victims here. Um, so dogs, toads, eels, and snakes all became victims of bets like this. Oh my gosh! Um, all sorts of animals were made the subject, and the incredible thing to me is that there were so many people willing to eat these animals live or raw. Um, and you may be thinking, why in the hell would anybody do this? Well, the amount that they were betting for, a thousand Guinness, it was more money than an average laborer would make in a lifetime. It was an earth-shattering amount of money. Um, it was so much money, in fact, that people began to realize they could live off of it. Now, and of course, we would never imagine doing something like this. First off, it's animal cruelty. But second off, the amount of money that they're talking about doesn't really register with us. But if you asked me to eat a ghost chili, a ghost pepper, for $1,000, I would do it. Right? And the uncomfortable reality is, I'd probably do it for $100 if you asked me. Right? And these people were being offered more money than they would make in a lifetime. Double it sometimes. And so, like, once again, you realize that's, that's where all this comes from. Like, blood sport, of course, is popular, but it's really, it's people who are in bad circumstances kind of willing to do what it takes to make their money. Um, uh, but... Which really sucks. Um, now, there are some people who didn't necessarily do this because they wanted to make money off of it. There were some people that did it because they kind of had to. Um, by far the most famous of these supernatural eaters is a Frenchman and a soldier named Terrar. Um, now, his name is pronounced differently in French, but I am not French, so it will be pronounced Terrar in American. So just to be clear, I am not mispronouncing it. I am avoiding destroying my reputation among the French listeners, of which I'm sure there are many. Um, now, Terrar was not considered a local legend like the hero of Kent. No one enjoyed him, not even his parents. Oh, no! No, he was born in the French countryside outside the city of Lyon. Um, he was a man of incredible appetite and incredible odor as well. Oh, my gosh, get this man some axe or something. That, so he was reported to stink <laughs> so badly you could often smell him coming. Right? Oh no, so honey. This is this is clearly I wanna say before we kinda of really get into the nitty gritty of him, this is clearly a man who's suffering from a medical condition. Right? Like yeah. Nicholas Woods might have had some sort of like thyroid problem that caused him to be hungry all the time. This man, Tarar, is suffering. Right? Um I, in fact, uh I knew a person when I was working at a Boy Scout camp that had a similar issue. Um he just had a problem with I think his endocrine system, and so he often had a bad odor about him because he actually secreted a lot of the like toxins not toxins because that's a word that you know granola people use to talk about juice cleanses but like he would often secrete things that his body didn't need through his sweat 
And so he smelled really bad, and so he took a shower a lot so he always smelled better. But if he began to sweat, he would smell bad. And Tarar apparently was constantly hot. His pores were continually producing foul sweat. He would stink so badly you could smell him coming. Um, but the worst thing about him by far was his appetite. He apparently ate so much food as a child that by the time he was a teenager, his parents turned him out onto the street. Oh my gosh! They, yeah, and they, they, they couldn't provide enough food for him. They were like, you gotta go. We can't afford to keep you. You eat too much. And so he is homeless now. He kind of wanders the countryside with thieves and other outcasts until he becomes kind of the pinnacle of what we expect from this. He becomes a shot sideshow for a con artist. So there are these people, like you've all heard of snake oil salesmen, who will go up and say, oh, I have these miracle cures. You drink this. It'll increase your appetite. It'll make your, you know, if you've got uh, marital problems, that'll make your marital problems better. And so these, absolutely, yes, Anna is laughing. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and so these con men would often, quite literally, they would employ, um, like, and, and I'm using the term here quite loosely, they would inter, like, oddities and freaks. So people you would normally see in a freak show would be used as a part of these presentations. Um, and so Tarar was used as an example of how well his, like, um, appetite tonic worked. So this, this con man would basically say, oh, is your husband, is he, you know, lacking in stamina, is he... Um, doesn't eat his food, he doesn't have any strength. Well, I feed this man right here a little dose of my potion every day and look what he can do. And so Tarar would be forced to kind of put on shows. So his main show would he would be swallow animals. Um, oh. He would eat stones and corks. Um, and he would reportedly swallow the stones and then he would walk forward and he would jiggle his stomach <gasps> and you would hear the stones rocking around inside of him. Um, and so people would pay, like, people would pay money to have him eat things. They would bring him things, and then he would pay, like, you know, half a shilling or a couple of pennies to have Tarar eat it. Um, now, he did this until 1788, working for this guy, until he struck out on his own to perform on the streets of Paris. So, how are we feeling about Tarar so far? How do you feel about this guy? Like, I feel really bad, because, like, I mean, his family put him out. He's eating rocks. Like, his insides can't feel good. Like, as the rocks are clanging together, all I can imagine is, like, skin getting pinched between rocks. Ugh. And it was just, ugh. He was, so, uh, to be clear, Tarar was, <laughs> Tarar was not his actual name. Um, it's unclear whether or not it was a stage name or simply a name that, like, he was called. Or, but he called himself this. A lot of what we know about Tarar comes from his own accounts. But... Some people think that the reason he's called Tarar is because the phrase bomb bomb Tarar um, in French uh, has something to do with loud, raucous noise. And he constantly farted. Oh my... Probably because he's putting rocks in his belly! Yeah, no, um, he... Apparently he had really bad bathroom troubles, of course. He farted constantly. But, yes, at this point, he is swallowing corks and stones and all these different things. Things that don't need to be put in your body. True. He, when he strikes out on his own, he starts doing things I think are a little kinder to his body. Um, so he shows up in Paris in 1788. Um, and so he, his kind of main show, the one that he does, is he would eat an entire bushel of apples. And he wouldn't eat them. He would swallow them. Oh my one gosh. by one. So he would just put an apple in his mouth and swallow it. Um, he was also very fond of filling his cheeks like a chipmunk, um, and so he would he would put eggs in his mouth, one by one, um, and he was reported to be able to hold about a dozen, a dozen eggs in his mouth. 
Um, he was, he was, his mouth would be incredibly wide. Now, is this, is Tarar, like, what, I imagine him to be, like, um, just, like, a large man. Like, what is, who is that guy, the giant? Like, Andre the Giant? Yes, that's what I'm imagining him to be like. So, Tarar, they actually have a good medical description of him, because he eventually ends up in the hands of some doctors who start working with him. Well, I bet and, swallowing rocks and corks um, and things you're not supposed to. Uh, yeah, but they start working with him, but reportedly he wasn't considered that unusual looking. I'll get to like his physical description in a little bit. But I mean, he is not uh, he is not an incredibly tall man, an incredibly large man. He wasn't fat. Um, he was just a regular an looking person. Joke. He looked like an average person. Oh um, my gosh. I mean, of course, he did have some things about him that were a little strange. So he does these shows, and then one day something goes wrong. Um, either the apples he swallowed don't go through right, or perhaps somebody pays him to eat something that doesn't sit right. So he's taken to the hospital, the Hotel Dieu, um, and he's given a powerful emetic, which is something that makes you get sick, and makes you like bring things up that you've eaten um, after a show went wrong. So he is he thanked the surgeon who helped him. Um, so he like he gets rid of this thing, he recovers for about a day, and then he immediately feels better. And so the the surgeon who helped him comes by and goes, "Hey man, how you feeling?" And Tarar goes, "I feel great, man. Hey, I want to say thank you. Do you want to see some like cool trick?" Oh no! Um, and the surgeon goes, "What trick?" And Tarar goes, "Oh, give me your watch. I'll swallow it." Um, and the surgeon was not amused, not impressed. Um, literally, it's reported to have said, "If you swallow my watch, I will cut you open with a sword and I will take it back." Um, which kind of shows you, like, the kind of person Tarar was. I like to think of him as a quite kind of optimistic guy. It's like, I thanks, Doc. Hey, you want me to swallow your watch? And this doctor is like, if you touch my stuff, if, don't you dare put this inside you. Um, so he gets released from the hospital. Uh, he kind of goes back to doing what he does. And about this time, France starts entering into the Napoleonic Wars. Um, into the kind of the, um, I believe it was the, uh, golly, I can't remember exactly what it's, France is starting to unite. Um, and so he joins the military. A lot of young men do this. I gotta say, just at this time, just to give you an idea of how old Tarar is, he was turned out on his, onto the streets when he was maybe 15, maybe 14, 15. He is now in the military at maybe the age of 19, 20. Um, so he's still quite young person. Now, of course, back in that time, that's not as young as you'd think, but he's still a quite young person. He's got one foot in the grave. Yeah, he's he's I mean, he's doing okay so far. Um, but so he joins the military, but immediately the kind of the higher ups flag him as unfit for duty. So they they feed him quadruple rations in his unit. Yet he still went and hunted for food in trash cans and in gutters. Um, he started begging for extra rations, and when nobody would give him extra rations, he basically became the gopher for the entire platoon, the entire, like, battalion of soldiers he was with. He would do anything anyone asked of him if they would just give him their food. Um, and so again, we're kind of seeing, this man is, like, desperately hungry. Yeah, all of definitely the time. something medically um, wrong. However, he, he worked as hard as he could to try and get as much food as possible. Nevertheless, he still couldn't get enough. He collapsed from exhaustion and was taken, this time, to a military hospital. Oh, wow. Um, now, they, they sent him to this hospital, and they start to treat him, but quickly they realize he is quite unusual, and they hold him for experiments. <gasps> um, and they start experimenting on him. So, these, these doctors are fascinating, and they start documenting, and this is where we really learn the most about Tarar. This is where all the information we know about him comes from. So, he encounters this doctor um, called Dr. Francois-Pierre Percy. Um, we're going to call him 
Dr. Percy from now on, just because I don't want to say his full name. But Dr. Percy is the Surgeon General of the whole armed forces um, and takes an interest in Tarar and starts trying to figure out what's going on with him. Um, now, they start documenting him. So Tarar is described in the medical documents as a man of medium height and build, um, a very pale person with very soft and thin blonde hair. Uh, the only thing strange about him, his mouth was unusually wide. Um, uh, almost four, he could raise his mouth up almost four inches, um, which, I, it, that's what it said in the medical records. That doesn't feel crazily huge to me. That may be four inches more than what the standard was, but it was noted that his cheeks sagged when they were not full, which is how he achieved that chipmunk-like effect. He literally had lots of extra skin, like, on his face. Um, his teeth were really stained, all the enamel was stained, and of course, the doctors noted his pervasive smell at all times. But they started to notice the smell actually came and went. So he would sweat constantly, but when he was well fed, he would sweat even more. Um, and it was noted because he was so hot all the time, it was thought he had some sort of brain condition. Like his body wasn't regulating temperature quite well, which is why he sweated all the time. Yeah. Um, so his stomach was very flabby and loose. And he was able to, when hungry, wrap the skin of it around himself. Oh my gosh! However, when fully fed, his belly would swell and he would stink worse than ever. His eyes and his cheeks would become bloodshot um, as his body worked in overdrive to process all the food that he had been given. Um, so they start testing and they start trying to figure out, and they do give him more food, but he is still, of course, extremely hungry. So one day the hospital he was in had 15 German laborers working outside, um, and they were working on some, you know, some big project like a gate or a fence or something like that. Um, and so they were prepared a lunch as a thank you for like coming out and doing this big project. And so it was set out on this big table for them in one of the rooms of the hospital, and Terrar heard about this and immediately tried to sneak in. Um, and this was a big problem with Tarar. If he knew there was food somewhere, he wouldn't ask permission. He would just go and try to get to it. So staff at the hospital like physically would hold him back. They would guard the door to keep him from getting into this food. But the doctor, Dr. Percy, observed him trying to get into it and decided this would be a good experiment. So he ordered the laborers to stand down, ordered the staff to let Tarar in and watched. Tarar walked inside and he consumed the entire meal immediately. Oh my gosh. So his feast consisted of two massive meat pies served with 15 servings of salt as well. Keeping in mind that salt wasn't really used as a food seasoning at this time. It was considered a more vital product. So you would be given salt to put on your food, but you were given a dose of salt as an individual person. So it's, it's thought that like there would be, quite literally, if you walk in, you see on the table these two massive meat pies, enough for 15 people, and then a plate of salt to like dip into to get this seasoning. Um, to drink, he had two jugs, one of whole milk and one of spoiled milk, which I regret. I was going to do some research into why it was soured milk. I think that was just something that they drank was soured milk. Um, but he drank all of it, ate every crumb of it, and just like Nicholas Woods, which I think is interesting, he immediately passed out. So he laid down on the table and fell right to sleep. Um, his belly kind of swelled up, he looked like he was pregnant, but a few hours later, he woke up and asked what time he would be allowed to have dinner. Oh my gosh, that's, it, that's so intense. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, and these are just like the beginnings of the experiments. Like, 
Uh, Dr. Percy only gets more and more interested as this happens. Um, so he's tested on a couple more times. They, they feed him all these different things. Like they ask him about the shows that he's done and he proves that he'll eat these animals, all these different things. He's reportedly, um, he's reportedly said to have favored snake meat. Apparently he enjoyed snake. Um, uh, I've had snake before. It was fine. Tastes like chicken. Oh, I was thinking more like a live snake, and I was like, ooh, that's gross. It's it's not known, so this in particular, this man, so there's one more person we'll talk about towards the end, and he in particular prefers raw meat. But Tarar, presumably, it's said that he would eat raw meat. Anything he was given, he would eat. But he did prefer for it to be cooked. So, I assume if they're going to do it in a hospital, like, they're going to make him eat it live one time, and then they're like, can I, he's like, can I cook it? If my doctor asked me to eat a live snake, I'd lose my mind. Um, so, he is a member of the military still, right? So, the, the people who kind of send him over, like, the, the captain of his division sends this letter saying, hey, at kind of what time, when can we kind of expect him back into military service, right? Have you cured him yet? And Dr. Percy is like, oh, no, no, you're not taking my special boy away from me. Um, I'm having way too much fun figuring this out. And so he decides to try and get Tarar a different position in the military. He decides that Tarar could become a spy. So Percy discovers that if they give him a box to swallow containing documents, it passes through Tarar's system without being damaged. Right? So he had the ability not only to swallow stones, he could swallow whole boxes. Right? Oh now, imagine, imagine this is like maybe the size of like a pencil case or a cigar case. I don't or care, that's giant! It is, it is big. It is full big. And so it, he does this once or twice for Dr. Percy, and then Dr. Percy is like, all right, let me take you to some of these high level generals. And so he is taken to these high level generals, high level military officials, possibly including Napoleon Bonaparte at that time. Now, the article I was reading could not confirm or deny whether he was there. It even was like, maybe Napoleon was there. So I'm going to assume not. Um, but the man we'll be talking about now, this person who's in charge of Tarar's spying abilities, is uh, a man named General Barnet. Um, so General Barnet is the one who watches Tarar eat this box. He sees him do it, and then a couple days later, Tarar comes over and is like, Hey man, here's your box. And Barnet just pulls out a handkerchief. Thank you, Tarar. <laughs> John. Um, oh no! Uh, and so... <laughs> Yeah, that is the thing, is that, like, he was asked to swallow this box multiple times, right? I'm really hoping they switched boxes, but... Or at least gave it, like, a deep clean? Seems unlikely. Oh, no! Seems unlikely. Um, so, now that the military knows what abilities Tarar has, uh, General Bernay gives him his first mission. So he is sent as a spy across enemy lines into Prussia to deliver documents to a captured French colonel. So he is given a disguise, he dresses as a German peasant, he sets forth across enemy lines, and immediately is captured. Um, you see, it turns out uh, Tarar spoke no German, and was an incredibly inconspicuous individual because he smelled, right? So he's masquerading as this local peasant, and he speaks no German and stinks from 20 feet away, and all these local German peasants are like, um, excuse me, police, there is a very strange man over there who smells terrible. Um, would you mind checking on him? Oh my gosh, they... That was... I feel like they just, like, they were so excited about the fact that they, that he could pass the box that they forgot that he has to speak German in German. Yeah, it seems like a very half-cocked plan. Like, yeah. a half-baked plan. It's like, okay, this man is a living, like, chest. We can use him to transport things. Um, is he smart? Not particularly. No. Um, 
Can he so speak German? No. Yeah, apparently it was very easy for the Prussian troops to find this very foul-smelling Frenchman masquerading as a German peasant. So he was immediately arrested, strip-searched, and beaten. Um, and then Oof. interrogated by Prussian forces. He, to his credit, gives up nothing. He spends two days in the hands of Prussian police until eventually Prussian counterintelligence comes and fetches him. Oh no! When yes, the counterintelligence fetches him, they torture him so badly after a day, he confesses everything. Um, he tells them of the wooden box that's currently working its way through his stomach and of the documents inside, vital to the war effort. So, he is chained to the latrine and put under guard until the box comes out. Um, when it finally does, the spies happily wash the box off. Uh, they open it, and what they find inside is not vital war information, but is instead a very short letter asking for any Prussian troop movements that the colonel knew and asking whether or not the message had been received successfully. Um, it was very short, maybe a sentence and a half. Uh, it seems that General Barnet was not as stupid as maybe we had assumed. See, he had met Terrar, and he was impressed with his stomach, but not with his mind. He assumed that Terrar was not going to pull this off and was gonna not, wasn't, wasn't going to waste vital, important information on him. And so these Prussian counterintelligence forces, who have spent the last four days torturing this man, and then watching him, waiting for him to literally defecate a box. They clean this box off of this terrible, stinky man, and they open it to find essentially nothing. And so, as you can imagine, they are not amused. And plus, Terrar is devastated to find out that he's not a master spy. He's basically oh, no. a glorified, you know, UPS box. And so he is utterly defeated. The Prussian forces are furious with him. And in fact, they're so upset they decide they're going to hang him. Oh no, Terrar! So they put a noose around his neck and they put him up on the gallows and they told him they were going to give him two hours to make peace with his god. And then they walked away. They left him under guard, they put the noose around his neck and they just walked away and left him there. So he literally stood hands bound, noose around his neck, you know, on that little platform that would drop out. He had no idea when it was going to go. And so apparently he begged for his life for two hours, which didn't make any difference. Um, but at the very last minute, they decided not to kill him. Um, you see, the Prussians, having cooled down uh, while Tarar stood on the gallows, decided they thought it was very funny that this <laughs> poor man had been forced to swallow and dump out a wooden box dozens of times to essentially deliver nothing. Um, and they realized that, you know, of all the losers here, it was really Tarar who was suffering the most. And so they let him live and they released him back to France, beating him horribly one final time to make sure he did not get back into the spy game. Um, and so ends, of course, the career of Terrar, the spy. Um, so he does return home, horribly bruised and beaten. Um, and when I say home, he just kind of comes back to the hospital. He just shows back up one day and is like, Dr. Percy, um, <laughs> I really don't want to go back into the military. Uh, see, apparently after this, he has decided he wants no part of the military and decides to kind of throw himself upon the professor's mercy, and so he kind of asks him to cure him, um, figuring that while the professor tries to cure him, at the very least, he won't be called into military service again. So, Percy, the, uh, you know, Professor Percy, the lead doctor, finally starts trying to cure this man's appetite, um, and so they tried a bunch of different things. Um, they tried opium, which at the time was relatively new. Um, opium, if you don't know, it's just drugs. He, they just gave him drugs, which I assume made him feel better, but certainly didn't make him any less hungry. Um, from what I know of drugs, they actually make you more hungry 
Um, so I assume that was abandoned pretty quickly. Um, the next thing they tried were tobacco pills. They tried sour wine and then large ounce of something called Levantine soft boiled eggs. Now I researched into this pretty hard. I couldn't find any indication of what those were other than that the Levantine diet, which is like food that comes from a place called Levant, which is in like South, uh, not South America, excuse me, it's like Saudi Arabia, that area. Um, so it's a lot of like yogurt and it's a lot of lemon and things like that. It's where a lot of like hummus and things come from. Um, and so this is possibly just soft boiled eggs with lemon and yogurt. But if I, if I can find what it is, if I find something different, I will amend this because they sound like something terrible, you know? Um, none of these were successful. And so Tarar grew hungrier and hungrier. As they attempted to cure him, he started returning to his old haunts, started sneaking out at night from the hospital, started eating trash, fighting dogs for uh, scraps in butcher's alleys. He soon became a nuisance in the hospital because he started feeding patients who had been treated with venesection. If you don't know what venesection is, it is phlebotomy. People were being bled. Um, so anytime someone was bled, Terrar would try and sneak into the room, and they would often find him drinking the blood of these patients from the buckets they were being collected in. Oh my gosh! Now, when he couldn't get close to the live patients, he started to move on to the dead ones. He was removed from the morgue several times for taking liberties with the corpses. And at oh! this time, the entire hospital wants him gone. Every single person from the porters who work outside to the surgeons in the halls, they all hate him. Um, he is reportedly, even dogs and cats would flee at his presence. Like, they knew him by sight and knew that they hung around, they were on the menu. So no creature would stir near Tarar. People avoided him if they could. The morgue had to be locked to keep him from getting inside of it. Um, but Professor Percy continues to like him. He's kind of grown close to him at this point. And I have to say, like, if you imagine this man is being driven by hunger, like, this endless hunger, you have to imagine that you feel sorry for him. Yeah. You know, and Professor Percy clearly feels that way. However, Professor Percy, you know, refused all requests to remove him until Terrar made the decision for him. Oh no, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> one night, a one-year-old child disappeared <gasps> from its hospital bed. And after they searched the whole hospital, the staff found nothing. Everyone suspected Terrar. Now, there is no proof that what happened to the child had to be what was Tarar's fault, but once the child went missing, no one no one would stomach Tarar anymore. And even Professor Percy was either unable to or didn't care to protect him. And so a mob formed inside the hospital and chased Tarar back out onto the streets. They told him if he ever came back, they would murder him. They would kill him themselves. Oh um, and so this man is kind of thrown back out onto the streets. Now. After that, we lose track of him for quite a while. He disappears for the next four years. And the professor, who kind of had cared for Terrar, only saw him one last time. So four years later, he receives a letter from another doctor who has admitted Terrar into his ward. Apparently, the man was asking for the professor personally. So Percy arrives at the hospital. He finds that Terrar is laying in this bed on death's door. Um, now, the professor could see that Terrar was extremely weak, and when he asked him what was wrong, Terrar swore up and down that a few years ago, maybe a few months ago, I believe it's a few months, excuse me, he had swallowed a solid gold fork, and he believed it was still inside him. He thought that it was something still stuck inside him. He thought it was what was making him sick. So he asked Percy if there's any way that he could get rid of it, um, either with a laxative or a purgative or something like that. However, Percy, as a you know, trained doctor, could see that 
you know, uh, Terrar was not suffering from an internal problem. He was dying of tuberculosis. Um, and so while Percy did attempt to force to pass this fork, no fork ever appeared. Um, about a month after that, Terrar began to have continuous diarrhea and died at the ripe age of 26. Oh my gosh. Now, when he <sighs> passed, his corpse rotted incredibly quickly, and Percy came as soon as he could to autopsy his body. When he did open the stomach, he found it was incredibly large. It took up the pretty much the entire abdominal cavity. His liver was massive. His stomach and his small intestines were covered in ulcers. Um, so while Terrar did eat all these incredible things, it was not because he had an iron stomach. Um, it clearly had done damage to him, um, but the one thing they didn't find inside was any fork. There was no fork inside him when he passed. Now, while Terrar was the most famous, he is not the worst. There is one final person I'd like to talk about, the human ghoul, a final feral Frenchman named Antoine Langoulet. Now, Langoulet was a man of voracious appetite, but his diet was very specific. He preferred rotten meat. Oh, no, 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 no. He liked roadkill and oh. offal. He would often walk through butcher's quarters and pick up what had been left on the streets. Um, but he did not eat them even when he gathered them. He would drag them to his house, this little hovel he had, and he would let them rot oh. until basically there was nothing left, and then he would cook it over a roaring fire. Now, he in particular had some very strange habits. In fact, it is thought he is the reason that there were rumors of a vampire um, living in the French Quarter at this time. Uh, not the French Quarter, the Opera Quarter. He actually lives where that very famous opera house is, the one that Phantom of the Opera is based off of. He lived in that area. So he stayed inside all day. He only came out at night, presumably because he didn't care for the company of other people. The only people he liked was the horse traders and breeders of the town. So he made friends with them and so basically anytime a horse got sick or a horse got lame and needed to be put down, Langoulet would just appear. He would just show up like he knew it was going to happen or perhaps one of his friends would let him know and then once the horse was put down, he would take the carcass back to his house to let it age into what he wanted to eat. Um, now, if he had stuck to eating horses, we may not know anything about him, um, but he did not stick to horses. You see, he found a new feeding ground. A graveyard near his home contained all of the rotten meat he could eat, and he made a nightly habit of scaling the wall with a shovel and a maul to open the gr fresh graves and collect as much as he could. Um, now soon, people began to claim, complain about grave robbers in the cemetery. Um, you know, of course, people coming out to visit their loved ones find that the graves have been opened. They've been, of course, reburied, but they can tell that the ground is disturbed. And so investigations start to happen. Uh, police and the doctors come out, and as they're investigating, they realize that the bodies aren't being robbed of their valuables, the things that they're buried with. They're being robbed of their flesh. So police started to guard the cemetery at night, but couldn't find Langoulet, although he did raid the cemetery every single night. Eventually, a church worker saw a creature pulling the corpse of a young girl from her grave and charged after him, only to find that Langoulet put on an incredible amount of speed and scaled the wall one-handed while still holding on to the corpse, taking it with him. Now, once over the wall, he quickly lost the police. In fact, he was only discovered later when a neighbor of his saw that there were articles of clothing belonging to a young woman outside of his home. Officers kicked in the door a few hours later to find him 
eating the corpse. He was dragged to an insane asylum where they expected to find a raving lunatic, but Langoulet was rational and sane. You see, aside from his appetite, he seemed the model for normality. He freely admitted in conversation that he preferred food that others deemed disgusting. And in fact, he had often desired to eat children, but hadn't had the chance until recently. After the asylum headmaster, Dr. Berthollet, heard this, uh, Langoulet was permanently imprisoned, where he died in prison. Now, all of these men had documented careers. All these doctors that treated them were reputable and you know, well thought of men of science. In fact, Dr. Percy produced a huge amount of medical papers. Terrar is but one you know, chapter in the history of the medical kind of advancements he's done. So while a lot of these things that I've talked about today seem very unusual, like a lot of it sounds made up, I'll be honest with you. It sounds crazy, but this, you know, these were things that like doctors wrote down. These were what medical science, you know, science was deducing about him. Um, and so what we kind of assume what, you know, Dr. Percy assumed is that most of these men had brain damage right? Um, their body in particular was not overwhelmingly strange. Although Terrar, when autopsied, the surgeons found that they could open his mouth and they could look down and see his stomach oh, from inside. No. That, because oh. they think it was because of all the things he swallowed. It literally widened out his throat. Oh, it no. made it larger. But in, but in particular, he just looked like a, an extremely damaged man on the inside. They think the problem was in the brain. See, there are parts of your brain that control um, your regulation centers for food. And so they think that was what was damaged. The hypothalamus, I think is what they said, is what regulates temperature and the amount that you eat. Which makes sense because Terrar was constantly hot and sweating, always hot to the touch, and constantly hungry. It's likely that that part of his brain was broken or damaged in some way. Now, Langoulet was a bit of an unusual figure. They thought he had brain damage in a different part of his body. I believe, again, the amygdala, they said, is what was wrong with him. Now, of course, there were no modern science you know, back then, so we really can't tell what these diagnoses are. But the fact that they haven't surfaced, the fact we don't have people like that in modern society, success, it excuse me, suggests that it was actually um, a combination of those things and perhaps that Terrar and Langoulet were suffering from parasites. You see, there was a lot, because they were in the exact same place, France, London, um, Paris, places like these, these cities, um, it's thought that they were perhaps suffering from like ringworm, a hookworm, or something that was consuming the food that they were consuming as well. Doctors wouldn't have known to look for it at the time. And so it's quite possible the reason that they were so hungry is because they were eating for multiple parasites, especially considering Langoulet's kind of proclivity for eating rotten meat, that he would have these parasites in his body. Um, but all of them were considered pretty sane. Even Terrar, who was, you know, of course, an incredibly strange man seemed quite you know affable to talk to the only thing they ever remarked about his attitude that he was kind of lazy he didn't really like to move around he was constantly tired he was lazy so we come to kind of come to the end of this here I, I these people are really creepy and really really tragic but I feel very bad for them you know these uh, these again these people are victims of circumstances beyond their control and so they end up in these really ghoulish circumstances. Langoulet in particular feels a little bit more Silence of the Lambsy. Um, he doesn't feel like somebody you would feel bad for, but Terrar in particular, you kind of do feel bad for, especially him dying of tuberculosis like that. 
Um, everything I've said today has been researched. And if you know of anything about these stories you want to contribute, I'd love to hear from you. Anybody who wants to send something in, please do tell me. Um, but all good things must come to an end. And this has been pretty fun for me. I don't know about you. How do you feel? I, I feel slightly traumatized. Um, I'm just sitting here in shocked silence. Good, good. That's the idea. I'd like you to be <laughs> slightly traumatized. Um, well, I hope you enjoyed yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you have goosebumps as you head to bed or to work or on with the rest of your day today. Um, thank you again to my special guest, Anna Brooks, for coming out. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you bringing your story and listening to my horrible, horrible one. Um, and special thanks to you folks for listening. Um, I'm Asher Brooks, and this has been Haunted History. Enjoy the nightmares. <laughs>